Well, good morning. We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, starting with verse 1 of chapter 6 and working through to verse 7. With this particular message, we are diving into what I would regard as the third main section of Paul's letter to the Romans. As you may recall, after some words of introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, and following Paul's opening thesis statement for the letter, which is chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, really brief thesis statement, but following those things, the first main division of this letter ran from 118 to 320, where Paul talked about the universal sinfulness of humanity and the wrath of God because of that, and as a result of all that, the need for an externally supplied righteousness. The reason humanity needs an external righteousness, not one they generate themselves, or what's sometimes called an alien righteousness, is because everyone since Adam has been condemned by their own unrighteousness, and therefore cannot bring about their own right standing with God by their own efforts. The second main division of the letter picked up at 321 and ran through the end of chapter 5, and was concerned with, in the main, with further developing Paul's thesis statement in 116-17, and in particular, this whole notion of the righteousness of God, what it is, how it works, what its benefits are, and why it is so very, very important. The third main division in the letter, in my view, then, begins with verse 1 of chapter 6, as I've said, and it goes through to the end of chapter 8. It's concerned with responding to two anticipated objections to Paul's teaching about the grace of God in the gospel. Chapter 6 deals with the anticipated and or possibly real criticism uh, that he had received that the gospel that Paul taught, some feared, would lead to moral anarchy. Chapter 7 deals with the anticipated and possibly real criticism that Paul's teaching had no respect for or disparaged the law of God, the Mosaic law. And finally, chapter 8 talks about the work of the Spirit and all those who belong to God and who have embraced the gospel truths that Paul has been emphasizing. In particular, he will show in that chapter how the indwelling Spirit is the means by which God sanctifies his people and brings them from the inside out into conformity with that to which the law points, but which the law cannot bring about in its own power. But that is a brief introduction, then let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue to look carefully at this uh, important and admittedly theologically dense portion of your word, help us to be able to see and understand the things that we most need to grasp, both individually and as a church community. Use these truths to ground us, to strengthen our knowledge of the sturdiness and depth of this gospel by which we've been saved, and then from that assured and steadied foundation, give us a greater confidence to pursue you and your mission for your glory, and we ask this in Christ's name for his sake, amen. Now, as I pointed out just a moment ago, here in chapter 6, Paul seems to be dealing with a real criticism, that is, some objection that somebody has made to his teaching about the grace of God. Possibly it's an only, only an anticipated objection coming out of the fact that Paul knows his audience pretty well, he can read them pretty well, um, or just the fact that he's dealt with this kind of thing before. This isn't his first rodeo, he's been teaching for a long time. Whatever the case, the objection, as one writer puts it, was something like this. 
Paul's teaching on the greatness of God's grace seemed to stimulate people to sin more than ever. For if in his understanding of Israel's story, the law led to an increase of sin, and sin led to an increase of grace, then logically, in our stories, we should increase our sinning in order to give God the chance to increase His gracious forgiving. They put it in the form of a question. That's where some people were going with all this. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? They were implying by this question that Paul's gospel of free grace actually encouraged lawlessness and put a premium on sin because it promised the sinners really the best of both worlds. They could indulge themselves freely in this world without any fear of forfeiting the next one. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of this series, you may recall that this is not the first time that this particular objection has been raised. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul indicates that he's already been slanderously accused of teaching that people should do evil in order that good may come, which is just a variation of the same idea we have here in chapter 6. When that came up in chapter 3, Paul dismissed that charge, but he didn't actually deal with it. Paul dismisses this ridiculous charge again in the verses before us this morning, but this time he's going to stop and take a moment to actually deal with it. And that's the difference between the two. So let me read to you, starting back at chapter 5, verse 20, going through to verse 7 of chapter 6. This is God's word. Now the law came in. To increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. In response to the charge that his teaching encouraged sinful behavior, Paul has several things to say, starting with what we saw there in verse 2, and where Paul writes again, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's quoting his critics. This is the objection they're raising. And here's his first response. By no means, and then he asks the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now there's a whole lot there in that seemingly simple question. More than we can unpack in a few minutes, but we'll try and consider at least some of what we find here. Uh, First of all, Paul's opening response to the question uh, slash criticism, are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. Uh, His response to that is to say, by means of a rhetorical question of his own, that the very thought of doing such a thing is inconceivable. That's what he's saying here. If you look ahead to verse 12 in your Bibles, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you'll see Paul there instructing the Romans in this way. Verse 12, he tells them to not let sin reign in their mortal bodies. Now, the fact that Paul issues an instruction telling them to not let sin reign in their mortal bodies tells us something. Uh, It shows that it is at least a possibility that sin might reign, at least for a while or for a time, even within the life of a believer. The fact that he asked that question shows that. And so, when Paul asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's not saying that such a thing is impossible. He's saying... That is inconceivable. He's saying it's contrary to what trusting Christ is all about. He's not saying it can't happen. He's saying it shouldn't happen. But what does Paul mean by this phrase, died to sin? In what sense is he saying that? Well, as we've just seen, whatever being dead to sin means, it doesn't mean a person is not able to sin or is incapable of sinning. Otherwise, his words in verse 12 make no sense. As an alternative, some have conjectured that what Paul means by this phrase is that believers become insensitive to sin. They become unresponsive to sin. Just as a corpse is unresponsive to any kind of stimuli. But that can't be right either. Because as uh, Stott explains, the expressions died to sin and dead to sin occur in this larger section of Paul's letter twice, uh, sorry, three times, two times they refer to Christians, but one time he refers to Jesus as being one who has also died to sin. And he says, since it's a right principle of interpretation that the same phrase recurring in the same context bears the same meaning, you have to have an understanding of this phrase, died to sin, that fits and is true both of Christ and Christians. Because the same phrase is used with both of them. What then did Paul mean when he stated that Christ died to sin once for all? It cannot mean that at some point he became unresponsive to it, since this would imply that previously he, that is Christ, had been responsive to it. So all that's to say, it's not just saying, the idea that maybe what Paul means by this is that believers become insensitive or unresponsive to sin, that doesn't work. So that's not what it's saying. So what is Paul saying here? If dying to sin doesn't mean a person is incapable of sinning, it doesn't mean that a person is insensitive or unresponsive towards sin, what does it mean? What's he trying to get across here? Another writer explains it this way. Paul uses the language of death because it connotes a decisive and final break in one's state of being. The idea here is of a decisive separation from sin. This separation could be a separation from the penalty due because of sin, But the context demonstrates that Paul is talking not about the penalty, but about the power of sin. Sin being personified as a power that rules over the person outside of Christ. If you go a little bit further along in this chapter, Paul will talk about what happens to believers in another way, using the language of slavery. Saying that when a person trusts Christ, they undergo a change of masters. And we'll have more to say about that later on. But they move basically from one realm to another. From submission to one authority to submission to a different authority. 
And so it seems likely that the language of death and language of new life that Paul uses here is intended to convey a similar sort of thing, a transfer from one realm to another that is so radical and so starkly different that it almost requires a person to resort to language that itself is pretty radical, like the language of death and life. A former way of life, a former way of being has passed away and something new is in its place, as one commentator says. That's what Paul means when he says we died to sin. A former way of life is gone. A new way of life, a new way of living is now here, is now arrived. Which reminds you of the verse in Corinthians. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The same kind of idea. There's been a major realm change, a major shift change in how they exist. And so it's precisely because of the greatness of this change that Paul responds to the question about continuing in sin with such strong language. He says, are we to continue sinning in order that grace may abound? That's the question that's coming to him. And Paul's response is, by no means, which is the Pauline equivalent of, are you kidding me? That's what he's saying. Such a response from Paul indicates his perspective that whoever would even ask such a question clearly has no clue what happens when a person embraces the gospel. Okay, so the stark language of life and death is resorted to because the change that takes place is a radical one when a person by grace through faith responds to the free gift of God's righteousness in the Lord Jesus. A huge change happens there, and Paul's language reflects that, but there's more to it than that. The language of death and life is employed by Paul not simply because it is stark language, but more fundamentally because there is a very real connection between Christ's death and resurrection and those for whom he died. Listen again to Paul's words in verses 3 to 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's a fascinating phrase. Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. I have no idea what that means. But we too might walk. I mean, it's fascinating. I don't know what he's saying. Um, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, don't get thrown by the language of baptism here. That's simply Paul's shorthand for the cluster of events that took place as people heard the gospel and then they responded with faith and repentance to the call of the gospel. And this is the significance. And and then they subsequently received the sign of belonging to God's covenant people, which was baptism. So Paul's language here evidences his understanding that when, when people embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, when they embrace the gospel, when they respond with repentance and faith, uh, there is a union that takes place, a real spiritual union that is affected between Christ and the believer whenever a person responds in faith and repentance to the call of the gospel. This is the significance of the word into, in the phrase, baptized into Christ. That little preposition is an important word. Baptized into Christ is referring to this very real spiritual union that takes place between every believer and Jesus. Starts helpful here. He says, So union with Christ by faith, which is invisibly affected by the Holy Spirit, is visibly signified and sealed by baptism. 
And the essential point Paul is making is that being a Christian involves a personal, vital identification with Jesus Christ and that this union with him is dramatically, visibly set forth in our baptism. You see, it's because of this real spiritual union with Christ that Paul can speak of believers not only being baptized into Christ, but also identifying with him in his death and in his burial, such that because of that union, Christ's death is our death. Christ's burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection. In other words, this union with Christ is the spiritual mechanism, if you will, by which we benefit from Christ serving not only as our substitute in our place, but as our representative. And it is specifically at the point of our identifying with Christ in his resurrection where we see the ultimate response to the charge that Paul's gospel of grace leads to moral anarchy. Because you see, if we're united to Christ, with Christ in his death and his burial, we're also united with him in his resurrection. Listen again to verses 5 to 7. For if we've been united with him in death like his, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, or so that, the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul's ultimate response to this charge that his gospel encouraged people to sin more freely is to say that on the contrary, the end product of his gospel consists of people who are no longer enslaved to sin. People who've been set free from sin. People who walk in newness of life, to use a phrase from the passage. People who are united with Christ in a resurrection like his. How is that the case? Well, the only way a guilty person can be set free from sin is by paying the penalty for his sin. How can a man be justified who has been convicted of a crime and sentenced to a term of imprisonment? Only by going to prison and paying the penalty of his crime. Once he's served his term, he can leave the prison justified. He need have no more fear of police or magistrates, for the demands of the law have been satisfied. The same principle holds good if the penalty is death. There is no way of justification except by paying the penalty. You may respond that in this case, to pay the penalty is no way of escape. And you would be right if we were talking about capital punishment on earth. Once a murderer has been executed, his life on earth is finished. He cannot live again on earth justified as can a person who has served a prison sentence. But the wonderful thing about our Christian justification is that our death is followed by a resurrection in which we can live the life of a justified person, having paid the penalty in and through Christ for our sin. So, in other words, in response to this objection that his emphasis upon the grace of God would lead to moral anarchy, Paul shows how, on the contrary, the gospel he preached was undergirded by this extremely important doctrine of the believer's union with Christ, by means of which we are spiritually united to him becoming part of his body. And that means, among other things, we shared with him in his death and burial, and we do and will share with him in his resurrection life. Even now, starting now, in this life, we begin to share in his resurrection life. And there's a further response to this objection that is yet to be seen, and which consists of the entirety of chapter 8 of Romans, where Paul will have a great deal to say 
about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the possession of every believer, which brings about a conformity to the law of God that the law itself cannot produce. Now, within these uh, just handful of verses, there's, I guess, two things that I would want to draw your attention to by way of uh, implication. There's more than that, but there's two that I want to draw your attention to that we can just think about or dwell on just for a few minutes. One thing is to say this. These verses do contain a strong warning for us. We see this objection that is raised against Paul's teaching, that it encourages people to sin. That Paul's emphasis on grace encourages people to flaunt God's moral law and presume upon the grace of God. To presume upon His goodness and His kindness and His mercy. That was the accusation. And we might look at that question ourselves, that question that was asked of Paul. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We might agree on the surface that's a ridiculous question to ask. That's a ridiculous way to think. It's a crazy question. But how easy is it to dismiss this notion with our lips, but then show by our actions that we seem to operate by the principle, by this very principle, in certain areas of our life? How easy and how often do we presume upon the kindness and mercy of God? Yes, God is, is, he is more merciful than you could possibly know. He is kinder than you can imagine. He is gracious. He is long-suffering. He is patient. Yes, His grace is greater than all of our sin. We've seen that before. But God is also more holy than we know. And when we cease to wrestle with our hearts against sin, we are forgetting, among other things, what this passage is teaching. We are forgetting that we have been baptized into Christ. We're, We're... actually vitally connected to Christ, a spiritual union. Think about that. Think about your life, the decisions you make, and that connection between you and Christ. We are vitally spiritually united to Him, and and the goal is that we walk in newness of life, not that we get a permanent hall pass for a life that never changes. That is not the goal. That's not what grace is about. It's not a get out of jail free card. God's grace is great. His mercy is beyond our understanding. But so is His holiness. Yes, Christians can struggle. Man, we can struggle. And we can wander and stray and go a long way for a long time. And God will give you a long leash sometimes. But, you've been baptized into Christ. You are vitally connected to Him. And sooner or later, if that's true for you, that reality is going to come into play in your life with or without your cooperation. There's a warning there for us. Yes, God is merciful, more merciful than we can imagine. He is also more holy than we can imagine. And he and, and he's talking here about being baptized into Christ so that we can walk in newness of life. In the power of a resurrected life. Not just the same old thing with a free pass. There's a warning. There's also a word of encouragement. 
And the word of encouragement is this. For those who struggle daily with their hearts, the sins that you wrestle with, the regular sins that you wrestle with, for those who are weary and tired of that struggle, for those who, for whom struggling or wrestling is not just a euphemism for giving in, you know how that goes sometimes. Somebody asks you how you're doing, say, oh, I've been struggling with this, and sometimes we are struggling, sometimes what it means is I'm not really struggling, I'm just giving in, but I'm going to call it struggle. For those who long for Jesus to return because of that struggle, for those who want to see the good work that was begun and then brought to completion, look at verse 4. What does it say? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Buried with him by baptism into death, identified with him in his death, united with him. And look at that, the, the purpose clause. In order, the reason we, that's happened is in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The second part is totally dependent on the first part. Was Christ raised? Yes. That means you're His, you are going to walk in newness of life. It is going to happen. Don't give up on the struggle. The second part totally depends on the first part. Christ was raised, that's taken care of. That means... If you're united to Him, newness of life is yours. It is coming. It's going to happen. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We've been united with Him. Did that happen? Yes, it has happened. Then what? We shall certainly, certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So there's encouragement here as well. For those who are struggling, who genuinely struggle and wrestle with their hearts, wrestle with what it means to become more like Jesus, to be more conformed to His image, take heart. It's going to happen. The newness of life is in process. We'll be looking at that in greater detail in chapter 7, and chapter 8 of Romans when we get to it. But take heart, be encouraged by these words. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed thankful. for the kindness and mercy that you show us. Uh, please forgive us for our presumption. And trouble us in areas that we need to be troubled. Comfort us in areas where we need comfort. Remind us of things, even from this passage, that we need to remember. And remind us at the very moments we need to remember them.
Father, help us to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage one another with these truths, to build one another up, to speak your truth into each other's lives, and so be uh, instruments of sanctification for one another and of, of encouragement, of challenge. Help us, Father, outside uh, the relationships represented in this room to do the very same thing, to speak the truth of your gospel and the righteousness and right standing with you that you offer freely to all who will receive it. Father, make us agents of that as well. Make us uh, your spokespeople. Give us the words. Give us the courage, the motivation, uh, the perspective, the compassion that we need. To, to live in that way, to speak to others in that way, and to, to trust that, um, that through this very means you will draw and bring many people to yourself. And uh, we pray, Father, we'd have the privilege of seeing you do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We'll take up an offering now for those who want to support the work of this church or various ministries that are supported by this church.